Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 21 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology and reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you are in the right place. Before we get started, just a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast, I sure hope that you think about becoming a patron for only a few dollars a month at Patreon. That's www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. As a patron, you'll be able to submit questions to the show, get access to tip sheets on nuclear weapons, but more importantly, you'll actually be supporting the production of this podcast. Uh, personal update, uh, only one more episode before I take a one-month vacation. I expect to be back on the air Sunday after Labor Day, and I'm planning to focus a lot more on biological weapons next season. On that note, my headline for this week is House Orders Pentagon to Review If It Exposed Americans to Weaponized Ticks, published on July 16 in The Guardian. So what is this about? The U.S. House of Representatives is calling for an investigation into whether the spread of Lyme disease, which began in 1975, was caused by the U.S. Army's biological weapons program between 1950 and 1975. So a couple of people have sent me the link to this article and asked me what I think. Um, some of them have read my novel, Bionic Bug, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but some of the things that I've said to them in response um, was, insects have long been considered potential vectors of disease. The Japanese, for example, dropped fleas on cities in China infected with the plague. The U.S. government developed biological weapons starting in the 1940s at the same time that we began developing nuclear weapons under the Manhattan Project. And we developed uh, biological weapons until 1970, when the U.S. signed the Biological Weapons Convention, which then entered into force in 1975. So the, the period of time, 1950 to 1975, roughly matches up with the time during which the U.S. was engaged in bioweapons research. So a lot of this research took place at facilities um, such as Fort Detrick, which is located in Maryland, and Plum Island, which is in New York, very close to Lyme, Connecticut, where the disease, the Lyme disease basically began. So during the 1950s, the U.S. Army conducted bioweapons tests using simulant bacteria on U.S. cities such as San Francisco. Um, I actually cover this also in Bionic Bug. I used that um, moment in history um, as inspiration for my rogue scientist who wants to take revenge for his mother dying as a result of one of these tests. So if you go back into the historical record, you'll find that there was a lawsuit against the U.S. government because the simulant bacteria that they used in San Francisco wasn't harmless. And a number of people came down with bacterial infections. 
So um, the U.S. Army also conducted tests on human subject volunteers. Um, you can read all about this um, in the historical record. Um, what I mean to say here is that we we studied a lot of nasty things. Um, it was the Cold War. The Soviet Union was doing the same thing. Um, and we were doing so largely in defense for our country. Um, so that's some of the backdrop. So why, why all the interest now? Well, there was a new book published in May by Stanford University science writer and former Lyme sufferer Chris Newby. The book is called Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. Sounds very interesting. Here's a snippet from the book description. While on vacation on Martha's Vineyard, Chris Newby was bitten by an unseen tick. That one bite changed her life forever, pulling her into the abyss of a devastating illness that took 10 doctors to diagnose and years to recover. Newby had become one of 300,000 Americans who are afflicted with Lyme disease each year. As a science writer, she was driven to understand why this disease is so misunderstood and its patients so mistreated. This quest led her to Willy Bergdorfer, the Lyme microbes discoverer, who revealed that he had developed bug-borne bioweapons during the Cold War and believed that the Lyme epidemic was started by a military experiment gone wrong. So there was a follow-up piece on this in Defense One by Katie Bo Williams and Patrick Tucker. Um, the headline is, Did the U.S. Invent Lyme Disease in the 1960s? The House Aims to Find Out. This was published two days later on July 18. Defense One interviewed Richard Pilch, who leads the Chemical and Biological Weapons Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. For the, those of you who didn't don't know, I did my studies out at uh, Monterey, California and worked at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. Uh, Richard Pilch said that there's evidence to support both um, to both support and refute this conspiracy theory. Um, one of them, of course, is the proximity of Plum Island to Lyme, Connecticut, where that's the place where Lyme disease originated. Um, but then he also suggests that the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi existed in North America for thousands of years, as proven by um, mummies that have been found. So. Um, one of the reasons, of course, this fascinates me is that Bionic Bug is about a rogue scientist who modifies insects to carry the plague. And then he uses microelectronic packages to control the flight of those insects. And so you can read more about that in Bionic Bug. It's now available in audio, uh, print, paperback, hardcover, and I just put up the ebook version on Amazon for pre-order coming out on October 1. Another interesting thing, um, just as you think about the, these, uh, this article and, and the potential connection between bioweapons programs and Lyme disease, DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency of the Department of Defense, has an insect allies program. And I read a couple years ago a headline uh, that says, the Pentagon wants to make an army of virus spreading insects. Scientists are concerned. Um, Pretty much this is about basically leveraging gene editing tools uh, to modify viruses that can be delivered by insects to crops to increase their resilience to things like drought and other things. Well, that's essentially the same kind of research that you would need to develop insects as vectors for disease, and that's why scientists are obviously concerned. All right. Let's get to the interview. This week, I talked to Tim Westmeyer, host of the Supercritical podcast, where he overthinks pop culture. And in this episode, we also overthink pop culture. In fact, this is my longest episode yet. We talk about how nuclear weapons are portrayed in HBO's Game of Thrones and Chernobyl miniseries. If you haven't watched either, warning, there are spoiler alerts ahead. So um, don't, don't blame us. You know what's coming. 
everyone. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Uh, today I'm here with Tim Westmeyer. He's the project lead on nonproliferation at CRDF Global, but most importantly, he is the host of the Supercritical podcast where he overthinks nuclear pop culture. And I'm so excited to have him here on the show uh, this week um, to overthink pop culture. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, I do this in my free time, just kind of sitting around watching TV uh, with my dog and my cat and my wife. So it's always good to do this uh, professionally so I can have, justify why I'm doing it in my free time. So thanks so much for, for having me back on. I've been enjoying your all of your recent episodes of this podcast. It's awesome to be part of it again. Thanks so much. Um, so, you know, as you know, um, one of the reasons I started up my podcast was um, because I believe that we can have uh, impact through pop culture. And so I am hoping that writers um, are looking to, to have that impact and to do so by getting some of the technical details right. Um, so this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about two shows. So I'm going to offer up the required spoiler alert. We are talking about Game of Thrones. We will be talking through the end of this, this show. We are also talking about Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries. So if you haven't watched Chernobyl, although we can't really spoil anything for you on Chernobyl, um, that's all pretty much uh, history. Anyway, um, if, if you've watched either show and you don't want a spoiler, then press pause here and come back later. Um, so we're talking today about um, Game of Thrones and Chernobyl. And what's interesting is how much those two shows have in common. They're, they're both on HBO. Um, they both indirectly talk or uh, address the issue of nuclear weapons and have spurred mm -hmm. much discussion uh, about that in, in various magazine articles. Um, and something you pointed out to me, Tim, on uh, Twitter is you sent me a link of all of the actors and crew members who are part of both shows. There are 52 overlapping actors and cast members. And when uh, I looked at the list, I like couldn't believe it. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty amazing. I, I think a lot of that has to do with HBO has the same production teams. Uh, it was the same casting director, Nina Gold, for both ah. shows. Um, and also, I, but I also think there, there is something there to, the, the, they have very similar tones for the show. Sometimes a little bit bleak. Sometimes you need that kind of gritty performance for the type of uh, characters and people, real life people that they were portraying. And I think a lot of those actors are quite good at doing those roles. Yes, and of course, um, the actors, most of the actors in Chernobyl were British. Um, and I think they probably chose British actors mm -hmm. over American actors because having Americans play, I don't know, Russians um, with the former Soviet Union might not, I don't know. Well, Russia's already upset enough about HBO uh, doing Chernobyl. So I think um, maybe just one little less thing to upset them. One last sense. thing. I mean, I, it would add further insult to injury. So let's kick off with Game of Thrones. So this was a fantasy. I watched it mostly because it was a political drama. Eight <laughs> seasons, um, a lot of covering many years. Um, let's, let's talk first about Game of Thrones as story consumers and storytellers. So what did you think of the final season? Uh, I am one of those people that loved it. Uh, I thought it was great. You know, did it hit every single um, story beat correctly or as, not correctly, but uh, in a way that, you know, was a completely satisfying, you know, no, not necessarily, but overall, to me, bad Game of Thrones is still pretty good. Um, and all of the different things that I wanted out of the story uh, were, were hit. And uh, I definitely enjoyed the, the ending, um, the tone that it set with the ending, the way most of the stories wrapped up. 
uh, I was I was quite a big fan. And uh, and not only you know basic storytelling. Um, I'm one of these people who uh, sees the dragons in Game of Thrones as not just you know or, or mostly metaphors. Uh, not equivalents, but metaphors for nuclear weapons as a storytelling device, as a as a military tactic, as a military tool. Uh, so the final couple episodes, some of the things that upset a lot of people in Game of Thrones watcher com- communities were the things to me. I'm like, yes, thank you for some minor sense of, I don't know if it's validation, but it definitely felt <laughs> like, okay, this is doing right. Uh, and I was able to hold my hat a little bit high. Yeah, so what's interesting about, from my perspective, so I I have almost two versions of my response to Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. one as a story consumer and the one as a storyteller. So with each episode, I was, of course, on the edge of my seat. So as a consumer, I felt it was some of the best television I've ever watched in my entire life. And then as soon as the episode finished, I got very angry. (laughs) Um, But it's not actually, unlike a lot of people who were upset about Danny as the Mad Queen or um, Danny getting stabbed in the end, I actually felt that those were very legitimate choices. I just felt like it was sloppy storytelling and that they Mm -hmm. didn't, they, they, because it was going to be an unpopular choice for those people who really want that sappy, bitter, you know, sapper, super sweet ending, happy ending. Look, George R. R. Martin never was going to have a happy ending in the series. I mean, that's, this is not what this is about. Um, and so I was very much on board with Danny as the mad queen, but the way that it was um, done on the screen, I felt it was weak and unpersuasive. And as a result, it fell flat. And I was very disappointed as a result of that. So I have one change that I would have made that I think they could have done pretty easily. Mm. And I think it would have um, addressed a lot of kind of, there's a big fan theory out there that Bran was the Night King. And if at that last scene where Bran's sitting in the wheelchair and John's taking leave of Bran, if there had been a glimmer in Bran's blue eyes, (laughs) just that one little glimmer, because there was this moment where when Bran was warging during the whole battle of Winterfell, and you wonder what the hell is Bran doing? (laughs) Yeah, And um, there was this um, picture of the Night King on the dragon. All you saw was his hand. And so you saw Bran warging, and then you saw the Night King's hand spread out. I actually thought, no way! Bran is <laughs> warging into the Night King. Holy crap. But if, if, if they had done that one little thing, I would have, like, I think because I've had my mind blown by Game of Thrones in past mm-hmm. seasons, that I really was hoping for a mind-blowing um, finale. Uh, my mind wasn't blown. I actually predicted Danny um, going crazy um, because that much power, and also some of the things she said, she was just incredibly idealistic. And there's a lot of danger in being so idealistic because there's the way that the world works and the way that the world should work. And I think that's ultimately what um, George R. R. Martin was largely playing with um, throughout the series with the different characters, with Ned being one of the key characters of how the world should work and John being another character of how the world should work. And then some of the more shrewd characters like Bolton and Mm -hmm. um, Jamie, you know, this is how the world works. And um, anyway, so let's change topics. So if, if most, many people in my audience are not policy wonks or military strategists, so they probably didn't realize that not only did the show have one of the followers, maybe the largest following ever, I don't know the stats on it, but it inspired tons of analysis on topics such as, such as international relations, military strategy, politics, and of course, nuclear weapons. And there have been a number of articles about dragons as an analogy for nuclear weapons. In fact, you wrote one of them 
um, and it was called Dragons, Nuclear Weapons, and Game of Thrones, and you wrote it in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. I think you did it last year, and then it was reprised this spring. It, Is that correct? 20, 2014. It's been a while. I wrote this in uh, 2014, and then they republished it uh, early this year uh, for the new se- the final season. Okay, yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about, so I know George R. R. Martin actually saw himself as portraying dragons as nuclear weapons. He actually said that, and you mentioned that in your article. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you see similarities between dragons and nuclear weapons? What parallels do you see? Sure, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of this particular idea came from uh, me and being just a general fan for, you know, Game of Thrones and the book series, A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, So some of the things I do when I'm not watching a movie about nuclear weapons uh, is I, you know, I I watch uh, a lot of stuff and I read a lot of stuff and I listen to a lot of podcasts about, about Game of Thrones. And in one of the, my favorite shows uh, is called the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. I highly recommend it for Game of Thrones fans. Uh, They mentioned something in passing about how dragons are flying nuclear dinosaurs. And I thought, oh, that's kind of an interesting idea. So I, I looked up to try to see if there was anyone talking about this. And, of course, George R. R. Martin talked about it in an interview in 2011 uh, with Vulture magazine. And he said, dragons are the nuclear deterrent, and only Danny has them, which in some ways makes her the most powerful person in the world. But is that sufficient? These are the kinds of issues I am trying to explore. The United States has the ability to destroy the world with our nuclear arsenal, but that does not mean that we can achieve specific geopolitical goals. Power is more subtle than that. You can have the power to destroy, but it does not give you the power to reform or improve or build. So I think at a base level, that is very much the story that George R. R. Martin is telling with dragons, among other things. He's really good at picking certain elements of history, and he doesn't do a direct you know, one-to-one equivalent. You know, He draws on the War of the Roses, but he's not telling the story of the War of the Roses just with a fantasy element. So I think part of the element he's trying to tell with, with dragons is, is like, what happens if you take something that is, you know, the equivalent of nuclear weapons in a medieval setting and you give that to an individual who is coming from, you know, this very particular background of being sold basically as a, as a sex slave to someone in exchange for an army, you know, and, and she's on the run and she has this feeling that her family's uh, uh, crown was taken away from them. And, but also maybe, you know, she's also a very uh, person who of the people. She wants to free slaves. So if you give someone all of a sudden this kind of power and it's unchecked, there's nothing so far, at least in the books and in the show, there was a little bit of things with, with scorpion bolts and things like that. But, you know, ultimately there's nothing that can check this. So what, what happens when you have that dynamic? You're, you can destroy a city, you know, you see in the end of the, the show in the episode of The Bells, you know, she can destroy King's Landing in less than an hour. But what next? What's the next step? What do you use that power for? How can you accomplish political goals in Marine? Well, she ultimately kind of couldn't without some other things helping along those lines. So I think that's ultimately on a narrative sense, the kind of story that George R. R. Martin is telling. And I also am one of those people who believes that he's, amongst other things, is telling an anti-war narrative. He talks a lot about why you know, war is hell. It's a violence is a disease. It causes problems not only for those, and you know, the violence is directed towards, but also those doing the violence. The characters who commit, you know, acts of, of war, they end up reflecting on this stuff and how it damages their own psyche and damages their relationships and vengeance. Everyone in the show and the books who have seeked vengeance and, and revenge, all of them end up in pretty bad places. And I think 
dragons being this destructive force uh, is very much part of that anti-war narrative story. And I was kind of surprised at the end of the show that one of the dragons was left, although it's kind of on its own now. It's not part of the political structure or the military structure and if anyone's control. But I would also be incredibly surprised at the end of the book if that if that situation is there. I would imagine the dragons are not there because it's part of a, if he's going to tell some sort of British street story, they necessarily won't be there. So there's lots of other things we can get into, whether or not on a military level, if they're more like uh, nuclear weapons or what people who have written uh, pieces counter to mine, which is that they're more like a conventional air power. They're more like an A-10 providing close air combat support, uh, close air ground combat support, or if it's more like strategic bombing, um, fire bombing of, of Tokyo or Dresden uh, during World War II. So there's there, that debate certainly there, but I think from a narrative sense, uh, it's pretty clear that George R. R. Martin is trying to say that. And at least if you listen to the directors of some of the episodes of the TV show, as well as Peter Dinklage, who, you know, pretty explicitly talked about at the after the end of uh, the Bells episode, he, he's walking around and he's saying uh, he in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, he talks about why the showrunners were comparing on set. Danny's dragon bombing of King's Landing to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the bombing in 1945. He says something along the lines of, uh, what does Dinklage say? The, that's what war is. Do we make the right choices in war? How much could World War II have gone on if we didn't make these horrible decisions? We all love Danny. We're fans of Danny. And she's doing these things for the greater good. But the greater good, you know, when freeing everyone for the greater good, but you're going to hurt some innocents along the way, you know, that kind of debate. I think is very strongly there and the visuals and the narrative things back that up. Actually, I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I think George R. R. Martin was really going for not a, a one for one, but much more of the nuance and the, you know, the use of military power of what comes next. Um, because destroying things, you can only achieve so much with destroying things, right? Um, it's, it's what comes next. That's really important. And actually there were a couple of, points in the story where that was very evident. One of them where Danny has just gotten the dragon stone and she wants to take the dragons and attack King's Landing. Um, but Tyrion talks her out of it and mm -hmm. he basically says, well, you know, if you attack King's Landing with the dragons, you know, you're going to rule with fear, not love. And, um, you know, the people that that's a, you know, tenuous relationship because as soon as then the power shifts, um, you know, you, you lose your position. And so she's self-deterred. And in our world, in the nuclear policy world, we often talk about, will our policymakers, could they come to that decision? Could they mm -hmm. use nuclear weapons? Under what conditions could they use nuclear weapons? Because ultimately, if you hit a city with a nuclear weapon, that city is a wasteland. You're, right. you're not, you're not going to, you're not taking territory with a nuclear weapon. Um, you're destroying and that that act, I guess, you know, can achieve certain things, um, certainly within the context of war, it achieves certain things. But in the broader context, broader political context, what is the war set to achieve? That's a whole different story. And I think that's exactly what George R. R. Martin is capturing, is that in war, you destroy things to win the war. But after the war is really when when it becomes critical. Absolutely. And I think for people who listen to your show that are, uh, you know, writers of, of stories, I think the, the very idea of uh, people struggling what to do when they have the power, but they don't necessarily know how to wield it um, and, wh and what they should be doing and, and grappling with those real decisions of, 
if I don't use this thing that has a taboo against its use, if you use dragons to burn down a city, if you use nuclear weapons to, you know, destroy a, um, a deeply buried cache of potential chemical weapons, and you want to do that, but then you, you're starting to legitimize the use of those incredibly powerful and so, you know, some people make their say, argue, argue that there's no distinction between a, a large conventional bomb and a small nuclear bomb. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people that think that there is an incredibly large difference. And, but that difference took time to evolve before we really understood that, uh, not only from a military standpoint, um, military was largely behind on that question for a long time, um, but it took a lot of active participation by citizens uh, concerned about nuclear testing, uh, the potential conflict during the Cold War. You know, it took people to say, like, look, nuclear weapons are a category different than large conventional bombs. Uh, you know, the mother of dragon using her weapons is different than a mo- the mother of all bombs being dropped on a, a, a particular a small terrorist cell or some camp or something along those lines. There's differences there. And I think that story is very, very interesting. People struggling with that, what type of information they take into that decision, whether it's uh, the public backlash potentially, or whether it's their advisors. Because Danny, in the end, she doesn't have any advisors left. She feels like she's cornered. All of her best advisors have died or have been killed or she feels have betrayed her. So she's left to make this rash, very quick decision. And, and she feels she's only left with using fear to unite and govern. Um, but unfortunately for us, and unfortunately for the people of King's Landing, she has these weapons, these tools uh, to be able to accomplish those ends. So I had a little different take on her burning of King's Landing. I actually hmm. thought it was a very shrewd choice on her part um, because by this time, so it was a completely different um, context than Dragonstone, right? Before Dra- at Dragonstone, she didn't know, well, she wasn't in love with John. Um, she didn't know that John was her nephew. Awkward. Um, <laughs> she didn't. Uh, so, so there a lot of things had changed, and she now knew that John was the rightful heir um, to the Iron Throne, and she knew that her her um, inheritance of the Iron Throne was now in question. And we don't know how far Varys's messages went. That that was kind of you know. Just, right we've got a brief glimpse of this happened, but we don't know what the consequences were, but she knew about it because she burned Varys to death. Um, so she, um, she can't know then how far and wide that message has gone. She knows that Sansa does not support her and Sansa is incredibly powerful force in the North. Um, so now the, the calculation of these people um, admiring her and loving her no longer exists. Right. You might as well just destroy them because if they're for John, they're not for her. Well, well yes, but it, it's the sad evolution of, of Daenerys from a fan favorite. Um, and again, I don't, I say sad being I'm happy with the way this went, but you know, it's, it's her evolution of someone who wants to, to rule for, to make the world a better place for, uh, for slaves, for people, for women, for uh, people who weren't necessarily represented in the government structure. You know, she wants to break the wheel, but then she essentially evolves in the end. In, because of the scenarios he laid out, into a Tywin Lannister, someone who is willing to drown an entire uh, cave full of families in the reigns of Castamere uh, so that, you know, he, he can just prove a point. Because ultimately, in the long run, you know, it's the same decision that people grappled with with 
with World War II and, and dropping uh, the atomic bombs in Japan? Do you try to battle it out island by island uh, and risk more American lives uh, and potentially arguably more you know, Japanese lives, or do you end it very quickly? Do you uh, fight a long battle with the War of the Five Kings, or do you kill a bunch of people while they're having a wedding? You know, those kinds of decisions is what Game of Thrones is about. And it just, for for some fans, they didn't like how Daenerys kind of fell into that. But I, well, I think that that is, I would agree with you completely. I just, I think that becomes a different person, and I'm not happy with her making that decision, but I understand it's from a strategic standpoint, it's the only one that she had. Right. So if, if they're upset about it, I would say that they weren't watching the show. Um, so another interesting aspect of um, deterrence and dragons is um, how Danny basically strengthened her deterrent by making a show of it. So first of all, she killed um, two of the um, guys in Marine, um, the former rulers, um, mm -hmm. burned them to death, right? She burns to death the Tarleys. Now, you would say that those are brutal displays of that power, but she was aware of that power, but she also has to demonstrate she's willing to use that power under certain conditions. She's making a red line, right? She's saying, you cross this red line, you're toast. That's why Varys knew and was taking off his rings. He's like, I am so toast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's a really important nuance in deterrence. Um, that is, is hard to, and, and going back to World War II and the use of the bomb, I think that another motivation for using the bomb was this fear that if they didn't use the bomb, if they just tested it somewhere and demonstrated it, that that wouldn't be a sufficient demonstration of its power, mm -hmm. and therefore it would not serve as a deterrent. So some might argue that had the bombs not been used on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, um, as devastating as they were, there might have been some sort of use between the Soviet Union and the United States at a later date. Maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, would have played out differently. Sure, and I, I would not argue with pretty much mo you know most of that. I, I think the uh, the question simply becomes from a perspective of on a strategic standpoint, she has to do this because otherwise people won't believe that she, um, you know, if. There, she, they won't believe that she will use her weapons in the future, her, her, her dragons. Uh, if she made the decision to uh, potentially just destroy, say, King's, uh, the Red Keep, where Cersei was, just destroy that, but let the rest of the population live. That could be one scenario. And you can make your case that, well, well that doesn't demonstrate enough uh, her uh, willingness to inflict damage if you don't bend the knee around the world. Uh, but if she has, if she makes that calculation, you can say, okay, great, that's that's strategically the right way to go. But from a moral perspective, or from a thing that we would want to have to take place, it's certainly not the way we want it to be. And George R. R. Martin is comfortable, and I think well, I think the showrunners are comfortable with that laying that out there and saying, yeah, you can agree from a strategic standpoint, it may be the only thing that she could have done. But from a perspective of do we want this person ruling, you know, no. Uh, you know, I, I think some people might argue that it's better to let Cersei rule than to burn the city down. You know, right. those are the kind of decision, decisions that make Game of Thrones so interesting. And it really is difficult. It's hard to to look one way or the other. And I think the finale challenged a lot of people and their perspective on these issues and certainly challenged me. And, and it's challenging to me every time I go to a party and my friends ask me what I thought about the fi Game of Thrones final season. And I think I liked it. And then, you know, I feel like I'm getting cornered, uh, you know, <laughs> 
<laughs> surrounded, circ- be encircled by three fire-breathing dragons. Oh, my Although goodness. my friends are very kind. Yeah, so um, you talked about or you hinted at the fact that um, there were a number of articles that came out against yours and actually argued fundamentally different points mm-hmm. and um, that you felt extremely vindicated by the final season. I can see where you did. Um, but two of those articles, so the two in particular I picked out is the one where Alex Ward um, from Vox interviews Michael Horowitz and mm-hmm. the title of the article is Why the Dragons on um, Game of Thrones Aren't Akin to Nukes. And then... Um, the, the second is um, Washington Post, written by Michael Horowitz and Matthew Furman. Are Games of Thrones dragons equivalent of nuclear weapons? We don't think so. And so I'll go to Alex's first because Alex is interviewing Michael, so we'll talk about Michael a second. But Alex actually makes an interesting point in his um, analysis, and he thought that um, compared to dragons, that dragons aren't like nukes, but wildfire was more of a weapon of mass destruction um, because they were hard to contain. And he said not very good battlefield weapons, although I don't know. The naval battle was pretty, pretty, pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Uh, well, so I definitely, uh, I liked uh, having a conversation with Michael Horwitz on my podcast, the, the Supercritical podcast. We talked for about an hour uh, going back and forth on uh, dragons versus, uh, dragons as nukes versus dragons as conventional weapons. So I'd recommend people, after they're done, they're done with this episode, they check that out. That was a lot of fun. Um, and it turns out that Michael Horowitz and I both did a policy debate in high school and college. So that was kind of a fun <laughs> coming back to that moment there. Although Michael was, was much better than, than me uh, at, at that activity. Um, but so I, I uh, to, to me, in terms of the fi- with wildfire, it is a weapon to mass destruction, but it's more akin to chemical weapons, you know, from the sense that it's not particularly good uh, battlefield weapon. If the wind blows a certain direction, it can blow right back <laughs> at you. And it is really only good in those very narrow circumstances of trapping a bunch of ships in Blackwater Bay. And that was what Tyrion knew. You know, he knew that if you can't use these things on the battlefield, if, if people can, you know, end up getting hurt from your own, your own side, you have to kind of push everything further away, which is why you see wildfire not necessarily being used on uh, a, a, a very broad, uh, you know, theater of activity. There's examples in the store, in the books about, uh, a, a Targaryen king after the dragons were dead and he wanted to to take over Dorne because Dorne was so tricky. They could never conquer Dorne because it would always just evacuate its cities and you would burn the city down with a dragon and then they would come back. And you could there were there were no good targets for using dragons and it was more like an insurgency. But then when they were still trying to take take over Dorne and there were no more dragons, they built these giant wooden towers near King's Landing and they tried to wheel them over and they were going to spit wildfire at the cities, but they didn't get very far. They kind of got all broke down and burned down uh, in a forest when they were trying to bring them through. Uh, and I think direct wildfire is very akin to that unless so, um, you know, as, as a nuclear weapon, but it is certainly a weapon of mass destruction for sure. Yeah, yeah. So let's um, turn to uh, the arguments put forward by Michael Horitz and Matthew Furman. Um, I know they're not here to defend their views, but I would also throw in there. It's a great article by Matthew Galt, uh, who writes a lot for, you know, a couple different places. But I think um, Motherboard, I think that was the name of the 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 the, the outlet that he published uh, an article for, and he actually had me on his podcast, the War War College podcast, to talk about this. So I would just throw his in there as well. That was a really good piece. Awesome. So basically, Michael and Matthew argue that dragons are not like nuclear weapons. They're more akin to conventional air power. And they use a lot of examples from how the dragons were used on the battlefield. And I think that we're looking at two 
incongruous situations. Um, nuclear weapons were used in Japan, on Nagasaki, and Hiroshima, and since have not been used on the battlefield. They have been used for a deterrent, but not mm -hmm. directly on the battlefield. Although, the big plan for defending Europe throughout the 50s and 60s was to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. It just never came to that because it was a really awkward using nukes anywhere because of the radiation is, is, is not, not terribly useful. Yeah, it turns, much... turns out most of Europe didn't want necessarily yeah. to become a wasteland. They, exactly. might, they might welcome the Russians over that. So the three examples in their article, um, dragons are used for close air support. And um, if you remember the, the, the loot train that was burned by the dragons, um, also the battle of Winterfell, um, you saw the dragons being used um, to take out uh, the, um, the, what do they call them? And I'm, I'm going to say zombies, but I forget what they call them in Game of Thrones. Whites? Whites. Yeah, um, whites. Yeah. So, and then strategic bombing. So there's some intimation that, um, uh, well, Harrenhal was uh, bombed or burned by dragons. Um, and then also air-to-air -air combat. Although we didn't see air-to-air -air combat in season eight. So I think that your arguments largely play out. I think you were vindicated in season eight and in particular because the way um, Michael and Matthew talk about deterrence and, and nuclear weapons is largely a construction of the Cold War struggle to figure out whether these weapons could be used in battle or not. Mm -hmm. and the conclusion toward the end of the 1960s was um, that we should rely upon mutual assured destruction to prevent the use of these weapons in the first place. So deterrence kind of became the main use of nuclear weapons. But up until that point, there was this kind of back and forth, back and forth. Could we have limited nuclear war? And even after that point, still kind of returning to this, this debate. And so I believe that the situations are just not the same, that dragons are being used in Game of Thrones. Um, nuclear weapons have not been used, but I believe that the fundamental, as you pointed out, the big narrative, the nuances, were all very evident in the season. And I think I also really love the way that uh, um, that Michael and Matthew approached this topic because they they hired a bunch of their um, or directed a bunch of their research assistants to do some primary research coding, uh, <laughs> of pulling the data sets together about you know when dragons were used and things. And I think that that's great. Uh, you know, I would always say that it's you have to really look at the coding uh, and what the particular data they're pulling. So in this examples, you know, yes, a lot of the, the vast majority of, of dragons were used more like, you know, for ground support or for air to air combat of dragons fighting each other. But a lot of that was because of particular aims of the missions. The missions were to uh, a lot of those situations when Aegon the Conqueror would burn a couple uh, castles down, which I would say the, would be the equivalent of destroying a city. Uh, and then he didn't have to do that for very much afterwards because he already did it. His goal wasn't to destroy every single uh, person, uh, you know, in their, in their castle because he wanted those castles eventually to be used. You know, it's the same thing in, in nuclear war if you're trying to use a nuclear weapon uh, to conquer another country. If you want to rule that country afterwards, if you want to extract resources from that country or integrate that country into your uh, political system afterwards, you're not going to devastate it with radiation so you can't farm there anymore or you can't uh, have an industry because the industry is completely destroyed you have to find a way to to balance that and a lot of that means that you fight proxy conflicts you fight war on the battlefield which is why the dragons are used the way that they are and it's the same thing a lot of the examples they use is in a civil war of the the, the dance of the dragons where 
uh, two Targaryen rival factions of their families were fighting over the over the throne in a succession battle. You know, a lot of that stuff they weren't destroying each other's castles because they wanted those castles. So therefore, you get these other kinds of examples of, of conflict. And it wasn't until the last couple episodes of the show would you actually get Daenerys using her dragons against a city because she did not want to do that until the point where she does. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a way that nuclear weapons work. They will deter until they do not. And then <laughs> we'll be in a really bad situation. And we'll be all hopefully trying to, uh, at the end of this conflict, marching north like like Jon Snow did, trying to find some sort of uh, refuge uh, in the, the wintry north, uh, away from all of this conflict and, and war. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think the point that you make is one that I'm concerned about today is the fact that they deter until they don't. And I think that the fundamental conditions underlying um, existing nuclear weapons stockpiles and geopolitics is, is different than during the Cold War. And the idea that mutual sure destruction will hold, I think, is is naive. Um, so that's, I, I think, I, I'm... A huge fan of the show. I think George R. R. Martin did a fantastic job um, drawing that analogy, um, and I think your analysis is spot on. I definitely agree that you know there were some conventional air power types uses of dragons, but that doesn't take away from the, kind of the big picture um, ideas that were presented. So let's switch gears and look at Chernobyl. So Chernobyl was a five-episode HBO miniseries um, focused on the world's worst nuclear power plant accident that took place uh, near the city of Pripyat, uh, which was part of the Soviet Union at the time. Um, In some ways, we talked about how it's similar to Game of Thrones, same actors, same crew, um, Mm -hmm. HBO. Yeah, we're we're switching Um, gears, not switching channels. (laughs) Right, definitely not switching channels. Um, but like Game of Thrones, not as much, but like Game of Thrones, Chernobyl actually got a lot of people watching and it spurred a great deal of analysis as well. And so let's first kind of talk about it as story consumers and storytellers. What did you mm-hmm. like about the series? Uh, so I, I loved from the beginning. I did not know this was happening until I think I was watching Game of Thrones and they had a trailer on before one of the early episodes. And just the, the trailer hooked me it was an amazing uh amazing trailer uh the tone of the show the the soundtrack the way the, how they were going to cover these topics uh how they were going to get you know a graphic where they needed to but also kind of pull back and, and do a deep you know over broad overview of kind of the the history of, of the uh the particular energy program in russia other conflicts that were going on in russia and then to me watching the show the the narrative uh, thrust of lo- of whether or not um, you need to tell the truth, and and what the consequences are if you if you have a system created uh, that is an informationless system. It's a system based on lies. If you just to, to get the next uh, promotion, to get the next uh, type of decision made, uh, to get the legitimate legitimacy of your entire government working, you have to tell lies to people. And if you have that system, what happens when you introduce these incredibly volatile systems of uh, nuclear power uh, in, into those? And and whatever ends up happening, I think the, my favorite part of the show is the through line question of how does a RBMK reactor explode, which is the type of reactor design at Chernobyl that exploded uh, in April of 1986. And how does that happen? And the story, I think, tells a really good way of uh, of portraying it's because of lies. It's because of these systems. And that's ultimately the story that they're telling. I, I love that. I think they do a great job with that, let alone any of the other production value, acting, 
and, and other things that they choose to focus on. It's also just incredibly compelling and gripping uh, storytelling. Uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, um, I agree. I What I love about technology um, as presented in film and in TV is that technology is always wrapped up in a political system and it's always wrapped up in a society, right? It's not just mm-hmm. about the technical details, but what I loved about this series was how much they did focus on the technical details and the politics of the technical details. So what, um, and I thought they did a fantastic job of um, planting some of those little, why, how does this work kind of moments throughout the series so that it wasn't too heavy um, for the listener and the way they did that in the first um, example. The hit exposition really well. Yeah, it was on the plane between the scientists, senior scientists, I forget all names, I'm terrible with names. and the the politician, the deputy secretary politician, so the white-haired guy and the guy with the big glasses. I'm very much better with visuals. <laughs> and I think you're, you're talking about uh, Lagosov, who's yes. the scientist, and then Boris uh, Shrebina. Exactly. Or um, you can go, you can go, Jared Harris and um, and uh, Stellan Skarsgård. <laughs> yes, yes, those two. Um, but still, it's the white-haired guy and the guy with the yeah, big glasses. That works. Um, <laughs> And they're on the plane, and um, the scientist is explaining to the politician how a reactor works, and I I thought it was really, really great, really well done. Um, I also loved the color of the series. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you, you, there was a kind of a turquoise, kind of bluish, kind of overtone, like the colors weren't um, vivid and bright. They were kind of tinted and darker, and um, then the the soundtrack as well was very... So good. it was just, it was empty. It felt, it felt, it felt, oh, it felt, I don't know, the, the feelings that it invoked with me. Because, so, you know, if you had told me, okay, so there's a series on Chernobyl, do you want to watch it? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to watch that. That sounds too depressing. But like you, I got pulled in on the trailer and then all the analysis. And then I started analyzing without watching it and I felt guilty. And I'm like, okay, I got to watch this thing. Yeah. Um, it, it's really great. The, the showrunner and the writer uh, for the program, uh, Craig Mazin, uh, who, who previously before this was mostly known for writing uh, some of the Hangover movie sequels, um, but beyond <laughs> this, which is which is amazing because I, I I I actually do quite enjoy those films. Um, but he did such a great job of wanting to tell this story. He he mentions um, he recently did an event uh, with the National Academy of Sciences in DC uh, at the uh, wasn't there it was at the Wilson Center. Uh, it was part of their the Kennan Institute. Um, and he did a, a kind of a panel discussion and he talked about how he heard, heard about um, around 2016 or so when they were getting ready to put the final covering, the, the, the now more permanent 100-year solution for the sarcophagus over Chernobyl uh, so that the radiation doesn't leak out any further. He was wondering, okay, I'm seeing this in the news. I knew that it exploded, but I never really understood why. So we got into the research of it and basically since then has been writing this story. And he did such an amazing job of uh, really going into the uh, talking to people who were there, t- reading all the different accounts, finding the most compelling stories he could tell, but not the most sensationalist stories. He could have found ones that were, you know, some people talk about things glowing green when they know, you know, we know these things don't glow green. Uh, that's the Simpsons. But people told this story uh, and he said, okay, I'm going to take the parts of this that are the least sensationalist and tell this story because even that is compelling enough. And I think he does a really good job of, of mm-hmm. piecing those things together, which is why also, I don't know, if you listen to the Companion podcast at all? No, I don't. That's amazing. Uh, he, HBO, 
allowed him to do essentially a companion podcast after each episode came out on HBO. You can listen to it for about an hour and he'll talk about why did we decide to portray this this way? So it's kind of a basically a version of, of this podcast, but only about one show and some of the decisions that he made and why he made them that way. Uh, for, for people who are listening to, to your excellent program, I would very much recommend they listen to that one as well. It's just called the Chernobyl podcast. You can find it wherever podcasts are sold. Yeah. So, I mean, I agree. He did a fantastic job and the way that he started out the story and ended the story basically sandwiched between the different um, individuals, the people who are making the decisions and making the wrong decisions because of the lies that the system, the political system was built on. Um, but it was more than that, actually. I think, um, I think when you have a political system that is built on false information or lies, um, it often is because, you know, well, in Soviet Union, there was a communist system, right? So it's a, not a free market economy. And I think ultimately the bottom line of a free market economy, even though it's imperfect in many ways, and we still have problems with false information and lies in free market economies, that the bottom line tends to force the truth a little bit more to the top, more, I say more, not always. And so there was another kind of dynamic at play throughout this um, series that I, I thought he did a fantastic job with. And that was the, the drive to do things cheaply um, was ultimately why they chose this reactor design, despite the knowledge that this was inherently flawed. Um, and so every decision, even the lack of training for the personnel, like every decision was ultimately driven by the need to make cheap decisions. And if we remember back in the 1980s, this was close to the end of the former Soviet Union or mm -hmm. to the Soviet Union. One of the reasons the Soviet Union fell apart was economics, that they just could not sustain the growth or the military, um, the growth that they, they had attempted to. So let's talk a little bit about why we don't need to panic about nuclear power <laughs> in the US. Because what's interesting about what happened um, after the Chernobyl series was released if you go and you look at Google Trends and you look past the five past years and you put in, let's see, what did I put in? I put in nuclear power. I think I put in nuclear reactor and nuclear accident. And so you mm -hmm. kind of choose five years. And you'll see this spike in May of 2019 because the start date for Chernobyl mm -hmm. was May 6th. And so there was a lot of people terrified about nuclear power, which is one of the solution sets for climate change for reducing carbon emissions, right? But it's a very dangerous technology under the right conditions. It's very dangerous. On the right conditions, it's very safe. Um, and what was funny is that nuclear power was never meant to be the villain of the show. And, and Craig Mazin actually tweeted that the lesson of Chernobyl isn't that nuclear power is dangerous. The lesson is that lying, arrogance, and suppression of criticism are dangerous. But... Was this, was this inevitable? I mean, if you think about how people freak out about all things nuclear, was it not inevitable that all of a sudden everybody is going to think bad things about nuclear? Yeah, probably. Uh, it's kind of hard to, uh, to avoid those concerns because if people are, are concerned about their health and well-being and then they see a, a show, which as good as it is explaining why this happens, you know, sometimes people still don't necessarily, I don't know if it's a matter of like picking up on the issue, but they're, they're enjoying it differently than you or I uh, would, would enjoy one of these shows. I think that's pretty difficult to do it. I think they, they do a pretty good job of trying to portray why 
this happened and it's distinct to this type of design, at least this particular problem. Um, but it is, it is fascinating that you, you mentioned so much about the cheapness uh, in the, uh, as a goal for the RBMK you know, design. And a lot of that is fascinating to me because of how much of a priority the government uh, and the party put onto nuclear power. They talked about this was going to be the thing that would ultimately bring about true communism where we don't have to even meter power anymore. It's going to be so cheap and uh, resources are going to be so abundant and, and literally people will not have to work uh, more than three hours a day because of the system is going to provide everything else they're going to need because of how cheap power is going to be. And the RBMK design, which had its roots in the nuclear weapons program because it was a reactor design that was created to make plutonium. You know, you, you talk about this very well on your podcast episodes about how you burn uranium to make plutonium and there's ways to do that faster. And there's ways to do that that are different than a commercial power uh, plant that's primarily made for making energy safely. The RBMK design is kind of somewhere in the middle, but leaning more towards the, the weapon side. Uh, it allowed you to extract fuel continuously throughout the cycle, which meant you can get to the plutonium faster. You don't have to shut the reactor down. All these kinds of decisions they made meant that they could have gone with the relatively, much relatively safer uh, design that most other countries use, which is the, instead of the two things you need to do in a nuclear power reactor, right? You have to moderate the neutrons so that they move uh, in a way that allows them to hit other elements of fissile material. Uh, otherwise, in the natural state, they're moving too quickly, they're too rapidly, they, don't, they cannot be bothered to hit other elements um, of, of uranium. So you have to moderate that, you have to slow those down, but you also as throughout this process, it produces heat, so you have to cool it. So the RBMK reactor design used graphite, blocks and blocks and blocks, heavy tons and tons and tons of graphite, which slow those neutrons down. But it also, uh, to use that as a moderator, and then it used water to cool the heat from the reactor so nothing overheated. Uh, so that's what causes a meltdown, where the, if the fuel gets too hot, it'll kind of melt its way straight down uh, into the earth. You don't want that necessarily happening. But the problem with the, this, this whole design was, if you, um, if you were basically in a, in a light water reactor system, the water is both the coolant and the moderator. So if there's too much heat and it burns the water away and it turns it into steam, there's less radioactivity because the reactions are not, the neutrons are not being moderated. So then there's less reactivity, which means less heat. And it's a nice little safety valve check that exists there. But to do that design, it's, it's, it's relatively expensive and you can't do huge, huge reactors like the way they did with the RBMK, which were relatively, you know, three times the scale uh, of the light water reactors. And it was more expensive. You had to do a containment system, uh, all kinds of different things you you could add on to it. Uh, they didn't want to do any of those things. So all of these put together, I think the show does an okay job of describing why those are different than the, the U.S. design. But I would also say that the, the show is not super concerned with nuclear power one way or the other, as you mentioned. And they are really wanting to tell this story. And I don't think necessarily they can be faulted for people that will then say, well, we should get rid of nuclear power um, because of what we see in Chernobyl because they're not interested in telling that story. And I don't think they're trying to be anti-nuclear power really at all. Although I will say the most fierce criticism I've seen about the show are from people who are pro-nuclear energy and like from the environmental standpoint or from an economic standpoint. That is where I've seen most of the criticism of the show and it's not really from 
any other places. It's, I think it's kind of a fascinating uh, reaction to the program. Yeah, and you know, as you pointed out, there were not just flaws in the reactor design itself in terms of safety, but also the personnel were not trained on the right. inner workings of the reactor. So what happened in the end to cause the explosion, which is absolutely fascinating, is that the control rods, which are intended to modulate the reaction inside the reactor, they had taken at the end all the control rods out because they wanted to slow down the reaction or no increase the reaction and then when um all of a sudden the fuel started heating up because as you pointed out the water was gone and the graphite um was still moderating the allowing the fission to occur um they used the scram button which um drops all of the control rods back into the reactor unfortunately the tips of the control rods which were made of boron had a little bit of graphite on them and so graphite actually increases reactivity, as we've described. Mm -hmm. And so as the control rods came back down, all 205 of them, um, as the reactor was overheating, um, it pretty much increased the reactivity at the worst possible time, which led to the explosion, which was caused by steam and then also by the buildup of um, hydrogen. So one thing that really bothered me about the show is that um, at the end, the last episode, um, the scientist, and I thought this was completely irresponsible, called the reactor a nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a bad choice. And I would say all writers everywhere need to not make such irresponsible <laughs> choices because there are, yes, some similarities between a nuclear weapon and a nuclear reactor, but a nuclear reactor cannot explode like a nuclear bomb. And there was another instance as well where they talked about a secondary thermal um, explosion that was going to happen, um, and it was going to be a two to three megaton nuclear explosion. And I literally lost my shit. Like, yeah, my head exploded. pretty crazy. Um, because I'm like, two to three megaton? And you and I had a little exchange about this, and I thought, well, at least most people don't really understand how powerful a two to three megaton explosion is. But if that were the case, then there would be no nuclear energy on this face of this planet. If mm -hmm. you could have those types of explosions coming out of reactors, yes, as you saw in, in the series, you can have a powerful explosion under certain conditions, but it's not a nuclear explosion. Any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I would, I, would, I would completely agree. I thought the, the, the description of that uh, one of the composite characters of a composite of a lot of real life scientists, they kind of merge those into one uh, with the character of Ulana. Uh, and I, I like this character a lot. Um, she's, she's terrific uh, played by, I think it's Emily Watson. Uh, and she's, it's really good, but she does make this point at a, um, at a meeting with Gorbachev and Gorbachev and trying to convince him that it's, they need to do what they they need to pull together resources and also ultimately too, they need to um, ask him permission to kill potentially some workers by putting them into very dangerous situations where they're going to be exposed to uh, high levels of radioactivity in water um, and putting them in that situation. And they're, and they're telling, they're describing, as you mentioned, if you take this, which is basically radioactive lava, it's a combination of the, the sand and the boron that they use to put out the fire 
of the of the nuclear core, uh, which is exposed to the air and it, it is producing all of this radioactive uh, ash and, and smoke. You know, they, they put they put sand on it, which cooled it, but then basically it's putting a a, a blanket over a fire and it's but it's still burning, so it's getting even hotter. So that the core of the nuclear reactor mixes with the sand and the boron and produces basically lava. And the concern, right, was that that lava would touch a water uh, storage tank that they thought was empty, but it actually had refilled again um, because of either rain or the the firefighters trying to put out the fire. And they were going to cause a steam explosion. And she describes it as a two to four megaton explosion. And I agree with you. If someone listens to this um, from a technical standpoint, that is nonsense. It, you can't make an explosion like that at all um, with that level. You can have a large explosion, maybe a ton, which was a, the explosion of the reactor itself was around a, a ton worth of uh, explosive TNT, which is quite a lot. Uh, but, you know, megaton is a lot wow. more than that. <laughs> thousand tons, right? Or a million tons. Uh, it's quite a bit. Um, so to say that to say that you would do that is, is crazy. I have decided to retcon that in my own head <laughs> as her just lying because it's all about lies right right she's she's exaggerating the problem so that gorbachev gives them the permission that they need to because it will cause an explosion but it may not be as that bad and if that's the way you get ahead in this system is by exaggerating like crazy you met your quota by threefold of your production of 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 textiles or um oh yeah there's absolutely no problem it's only 3.6 rotogens that don't worry about any of those radioactivities so I, I like to retcon that idea that she was uh, fibbing and exaggerating to get her point across. Although I will say that the show did rely on a source for that piece of data. And I think that's one of the places where the show fails in the sense that it didn't draw on the least sensationalist story. Because there is a source, there's a Russian scientist out there who makes this claim at the time that this was going to happen. But it's so widely disputed and discredited. Um, and I think that they am a little bit of sad that they relied on that when they could have told a story that to say, look, if there's going to be an, another explosion, you're going to cause the reactor next to it, reactor number three, because there were four operating reactors uh, at the time at this particular power plant with plans of doing, you know, two or three or four or more. You would have caused a fire and an explosion that would have exposed that one as well, which would have been pretty bad. Um, and the explosion would have likely been larger uh, than the... Uh, initial explosion, but you know, I think under certain circumstances it could be larger. So you can make that case, but maybe it didn't make for very good television. I think that's one place where they where they didn't do a great job. I have a couple other examples, but um, I've, I've been talking too much here. No, no. Um, I think your explanation of her exaggerating to persuade politicians in a in a system based on lies does assuage some of my frustration. But the last the last episode where the scientist with the thick glasses, um, Mm -hmm. he (laughs) calls it a nuclear bomb. I was, I was furious and it was the last episode. And I, I, unfortunately, because I'm so passionate um, (laughs) about um, achieving impact in the general public about these technological issues, generating fear about nuclear power does not serve us well. Now, I'll throw something else out because I have a very 
um, balanced view about nuclear energy. It is a dangerous technology under certain conditions. If you, for example, lie about its capabilities, you don't train um, safety personnel, you undergo a safety test when clearly the conditions for it are not there. Mm -hmm. um, it is an extremely dangerous technology, but as are all technologies, right? So what the other thing that I found so fascinating about this uh, series was how it portrayed the conundrum of putting out a fire um, driven by fission, right? And how that's fundamentally different than a coal power plant or a gas power plant, right? So in coal and gas power plants, you're burning um, natural, natural gas or coal um, to produce steam, which ultimately um, fuels a turbine, which produces electricity. Those concepts are the same, except for here we're generating heat from the fission of atoms, which I've explained in, in previous podcast episodes, um, we'll go into here. And the thing is, is once that gets started, unless you have, as you pointed out, a coolant, something to come in and kind of slow that reaction down, it just keeps on going. And that's why there's still heat being generated at Chernobyl today. And as long as the, the fissions are occurring, the radiation is being produced. And that is something that is specific to nuclear compared to coal and natural gas. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my favorite uh, pieces of information I, I learned when I recently did a podcast episode on Chernobyl and the show, uh, the show is about five hours long. Our podcast episode was about two and a, <laughs> two and a half hours long. So it's about, it's about half if you want to uh, just listen to it without having to, to devote the extra time. Uh, but I did that episode with uh, uh, Jeff Wilson, uh, who's at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation Policy, as well as uh, Megan uh, McCall, who just recently left the Plowshares Fund. Uh, so they were much smarter about this topic than me, so I, I'm really excited that they were part of that, that episode. But we had talked about um, how the movie, there's a movie from the late 70s, very popular here in the United States. I think you have, uh, have maybe alluded to it in a previous podcast episode. Uh, but it's called The China Syndrome. Yes. And it is, if you want to talk about a movie that scared people about nuclear power, that's it. Um, that movie, it's, I, I think it's a pretty good movie and it's a fascinating film to look at as a piece of nuclear history. Um, but it's really very scary uh, from the perspective of what a nuclear meltdown could be. And in that movie, they're trying to stop a, a, a nuclear meltdown from occurring at a, a nuclear power plant in the United States. And this movie was not widely shown in the Soviet Union. Uh, one, because they don't show a lot of Western movies there, but also it would make people doubt the Soviet Union's plan to produce thousands and thousands of nuclear power plants around the country. <laughs> but there, the, sh the movie was shown by some people, you know, Gorbachev saw it, uh, and some high-level scientists at the different institutes got to see it. And while Chernobyl was happening, there was a debate amongst the scientists about whether or not we will see a China syndrome-like meltdown and whether or not, one, it's real, is the movie portraying this correct? Is this possible? And two, is this Hollywood scenario likely and do we need to try to stop it from happening in Chernobyl? So I find that as a super interesting mega, like meta discussion for what you and I do, which is trying to tell stories uh, correctly, you know, get that story done but with the facts right. This is literally scientists during a nuclear power plant reaction accident debating whether or not this Hollywood portrayal is real or not and whether That's, or not they can rely on that data. And I find that very interesting. Definitely interesting. So one area where I think the series didn't do as well, although I'm mixed opinion on this, was um, communicating the effects of radiation. So mm -hmm. 
on one hand, I thought that they um, communicated the horrors of radiation really well, um, especially in the hospital scene, and um, it's, it's pretty disgusting. But on the other hand, they, they con contributed to, I think, some confusion. And you said you had a list of some other things they, they didn't do quite right. So why don't you kind of attack this issue? Well, my, my biggest concern, and again, I'm saying this from the perspective of someone who really enjoyed the show and really enjoyed the care that they put into most of the, the vast majority of the depictions of, of nuclear topics. But the thing that concerned me the most was the feeling that I got watching the film uh, in the, in, or the TV show that radiation was contagious. If you were affected by radiation and after you were washed off of all the fissile products on your body, after the clothes that had radioactive isotopes and elements on them, if you have to remove those and you're just left on your own devices suffering from radiation, uh, you know, acute radiation syndrome uh, or acute radiation sickness, that you are still contagious, that you are giving off a disease to someone else. And I think there, there is that sense of the people in the room were behind, like that were sick, were in a hospital bed and they were covered uh, in plastic uh, sheeting around, like essentially a shield between the people who were visiting and the doctors and then the individuals themselves. And they, they do kind of mention a couple points where that's to protect you from them. There's a right. storyline about, a beautiful storyline about a, a woman, um, uh, Ludmilla and her husband, Vaseli, who are... And the Fazeli was a firefighter and he got exposed to graphite and, and the radiation. He's dying in Moscow in a hospital and she is pregnant. And there's a concern about whether or not his radioactivity will cause her to have problems with her, uh, her child or her at all. Uh, and I think that they give off this impression that people can become contagious. And this was a really serious problem with individuals who were suffering from radiation sicknesses uh, after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were basically called, you know, monsters and demons, the radiation sickness where people you had to treat them like lepers and put them away because they were caused problems for you. Um, and same thing happened after Fukushima, people who were suffering from, from radiation illness, which was you know, pretty relatively mild compared to Hiroshima, but those people should be, you know, treated like lepers, uh, put, put in quarantine, and yes, if they still have that material on the outside of them, you have to clean them off and, and decontaminate them. But when, once you put them behind that plastic, that's more to protect them from you, from your uh, airborne illnesses, because their immune system is incredibly compromised. And it's not a matter of them being just like kind of scary monster that can hurt you. Uh, but I will say this, as someone uh, who is very sensitive to narrative storytelling, they for the show, they drew that story about the, the child um, who died. And they mentioned at some point that the baby, the unborn child absorbed radiation and allowed the mother to live. The child died four hours after it was born. Very sad story. Um, but that's the narrative story that this woman tells. And it, it's an important part of the narrative of, of the, what her experience was. You know, do I believe that her child actually absorbed radiation, which allowed her to live? Any of those kind of scenarios from the husband? You know, no, I don't think necessarily that's the case, but it's not any right to me to tell that that's not the right story. And that's the narrative people tell. And I think the show sometimes does a good job of kind to describe that this is what people talk about. There's a great book called Voices uh, from Chernobyl, um, which is about where that narrative is drawn from. Um, but other times it does kind of come across as, people who have radiation sickness are contagious. 
maybe if they have some sort of really strong uh, emitting source, some sort of gamma irradiating irradi irradi source or like beta uh, radiation in their system, they can maybe cause you if you're right next to them. But it's such a small problem that it really it doesn't mean that they're contagious. So I think that's just the one impression I don't want people to get away from, which is that radiation is contagious. Once you clean someone off, it's not, they're, right. they're not in good shape, but they're not a, a, a threat to you. It's, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, what's really important to understand is that you get radiation sickness and increased probability of cancer from exposure to radioactive material. And that exposure, it damages cells, it damages your DNA, right? So when you're exposed to mm -hmm. radioactive material, you experience damage to your cells and your DNA. How much damage depends on how much material, how length of exposure and near, near vicinity of that exposure unless he had shrapnel in him that was radioactive, he would not be an emitter of radiation. So um, I, I, I hear you when you're respecting the narrative of this particular woman, which she believes this is what happened to her. Um, uh, but from, um, from the perspective of a national security professional, um, I take real offense at the way radiation was portrayed because in a situation in which we have a radioactive event, um, I want people to understand that when you decontaminate yourself with soap and water and you remove your clothing and, and you're away from all of that, that your exposure is now over. It doesn't mean that the damage is over to right. yourselves, right? Because that continues depending on how badly you were exposed. You could have organ failure as a result of that exposure and then die, but your exposure is over and you cannot expose other people unless you have an emitter, a radioactive emitter on you. And then alpha and beta gamma, gamma radiation, or alpha and beta radiation um, can't really pass through the, the skin that well. Gamma is, of course, the radiation that is the most dangerous. And what's interesting is that the series made me look up material, um, the impact of radiation on materials because of the helicopter mm. crash, but also then the, um, the rover situation. Um, and of course, gamma radiation, which is kind of pouring out of this reactor like nobody's business, um, is energy. It's electromagnetic um, spectrum. So of course it would damage electronics and degrade materials in different ways. So um, it actually forced me to do a little research. I was like, oh yeah, okay, okay, that's legitimate. But this contagiousness business, um, I was very disappointed in that, but I, I might be a little bit more hardcore um, <laughs> yeah. when it comes to these things. Um, before we close out, anything else you want to say about Chernobyl? Uh, the only other thing I want to mention is, is that I really enjoyed, um, the, I, I enjoyed the storytelling about what it ha what happens when you have a system based on, on lies, um, and in informationless systems and things along those lines. And I think the, the thing that I kind of took away from this when I wanted to compare this to say nuclear weapons and the portrayal of nuclear weapons in, in the show from a, from a narrative indirect way, because in, in real life history, the RBMK reactor design uh, as we kind of started to allude to earlier, it has a really deep connection to the nuclear weapons program in the Soviet Union, not only from a perspective of the RBMK design was similar to how they, they bred plutonium uh, for their weapons program. So to admit that there was a flaw in the RBMK design is kind of like admitting that there's a problem with their nuclear fuel cycle and their nuclear weapons program. So that was kind of another reason why this was kept so secretive uh, throughout the entirety of this process. Um, you know, when nu when Chernobyl happened, it really scared Gorbachev quite a bit. It scared him not only from the perspective of what happens when uh, there's a future accident and this causes damage that could be 
seen by the public as similar to a nuclear weapon uh, being used. What happens when conventional in a conventional conflict, we start targeting each other's nuclear power plants. And also, he was concerned about what the effect this would have uh, in destroying U.S. Uh, USSR relations in a time period where he was working with Reagan on, you know, nuclear arms reductions, the, the INF treaty, uh, the, there was a discussion about nuclear disarmament negotiations happening. Uh, and so there was all this part of these, these talks, there was a, there was currently a testing moratorium uh, for the, for nuclear weapons. And all of these things were wrapped up in the crisis of Chernobyl. And, and he was concerned about how potentially the West may be portraying the Soviet Union as backwards and, uh, and it's causing 3,000 deaths per hour uh, because of the, the radiation and everything that was happening. Although a portion of that was because the Soviet Union didn't allow reporters to go to the site. So all the most sensational stories were there and there was no way to counter that. But he was concerned about how that would affect the geopolitical discussions. And to me, I kind of, okay, that's interesting. But it also is a very similar situation that we have today with deterrence. We talked a little bit about that earlier but you rely for deterrence. It's not a science. It's more of an art. You have to try to convince the other side that you will use your nuclear weapons. You have the capability to do so. You're signaling your intent and you hope that the other side feels the same way. And therefore no one will use their weapons because they risk destruction on their own lot, their own side. That is a, an act of faith. And it's an act of faith that we uh, should be constantly examining whether or not that continues to be true. Are we just lucky? Or are we actually doing something right? And I think to me, this this system of of trying to be put aside any sort of counter claims of why maybe this is not the system you want to have, why we have had a lot of accidents, a lot of close calls, but those close calls are often kept top secret and we don't talk about them very much, you know, broken arrow situations, almost, you know, mistaking a flock of birds for an incoming nuclear attack. Those things happen so often and we put them aside. Is this not very similar to what happened in Chernobyl, uh, a system based around trying to only show the most positive of a, um, a situation and facts on the ground and ignoring the facts on the ground I think that there is an element of that in how we talk about and think about deterrence and it will work until it doesn't. And then while we're all huddled together in our, in our underground bunker, wondering what went wrong, uh, that gentleman with the big glasses is going to come out of the shadows and say, you know, it ha how did the nuclear weapon war happen? Because of lies. And I think that is a, hopefully a scenario we don't see, but you know, maybe it's the one we tell around a campfire, uh, new versions of HBO that'll exist in the future. No, I think that's a really great uh, note, albeit somewhat scary note, to end on seeing ourselves in our bunkers in the future. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think, you know, the American population has accepted the notion of deterrence and the safety of our nuclear weapons arsenal for far too long. It's hardly questioned anymore. And right. I think it's something that, as you point out, we need to constantly assess and ask and question and that is where, that's why I'm passionate about um, using pop culture to have impact on the general public because I think it's these emotional narratives, whether they're right or wrong, are what motivate people, are what get under their skin, are what make them want to do something, are what make them go on Google and um, search about all sorts of things. It's not, it's mm -hmm. not the technical details, it's the emotional storytelling. And that's why I believe you can tell amazing stories while getting the technical details right. 
I think Chernobyl met that requirement, despite my little writes <laughs> <laughs> about it. Um, I think it's just I have high expectations, and they did such a great job. I want them to do great on all fronts, right? Um, but that's, you know, maybe I have too high expectations. But I think this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you, Tim, for coming on the show and overthinking pop culture with me. Thank you for having me on here to do this. Uh, I appreciate it. I enjoyed the, your podcast uh, quite a bit. And if uh, people like these kinds of discussions, uh, hopefully they'll, they'll check out my podcast as well, the Super Critical Podcast. We're on all the places you can get podcasts. And uh, my, my shows are not as polished as yours, where we tend to go two hours, three hours uh, talking about nuclear weapons in, in, in pop culture, books, TV shows, video games, those kinds of things. Uh, but thanks for continuing to do uh, good service throughout this program. Uh, and I, I've enjoyed a lot of your recent episodes, like with Jamie Withorn, with uh, Max Brooks and, and others. So keep up the good work on your end. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.